Evening team, how are we? That is good. Who's had a relaxed day today? Okay, a few nods. Who's had a really big day today? Okay, excellent. I'll join you in that. I've had a, I've had a full-on day, but a good day, and I'll share with you uh, a few things that, about what made it good. I preached twice this morning here, of course, and that was awesome, uh, but sat in a meeting after that uh, for a whole, with a whole bunch of young uh, teenagers who are wanting to get baptised. That's so encouraging. And then I was at a uh, meeting for a whole bunch of people uh, planning to plant a church in Lobethal. So it's kind of like big day, but so many good things that, that are part of that. Um, so, and tonight I'm here with you guys, which is awesome. Preaching again. So praise God. Hey, just to let you know a couple of things. Um, as uh, Sarah said, um, Nick is on leave. He's got two weeks that are paid parental leave from the government and he's got a week of leave on top of that and just to let you know as a church we um, our leadership decided to give him an extra week's uh, leave because we just want to bless him and Emily and give them time to get established as a family so that's something we're doing. Uh, Also to let you know that in June, by the way am I loud or is that good? A bit loud? Okay sorry I'm just talking. Um, Yeah, it's just a touch loud if that can go down. Um, In June, I'm going to be taking uh, some leave uh, into the first week of July as well, um, which is uh, leave called sabbatical, taking a sabbatical. And what that essentially is, is um, leave so that I can stop doing for God for a little while and, and just devote time to being with God for a little while and to have some intentional focused prayer and study and refreshment and I guess to, to give you a bit of the backstory on that that, that probably comes um, uh, like when I started out in ministry 18 years ago in pastoral ministry the, the tank was full and I was fired up and uh, I was uh, preaching out of the overflow of a, of a full tank and that's a great place that's where you actually want to be ministering from the overflow and uh, 18 years of ministry and a huge nine years here with constant continual change has kind of slowly emptied the tank and a couple of years ago most of you wouldn't notice and I took no time off but I was I was uh, I was almost running on very very empty and so I've sort of got through that and a bit more in the tank um, but um, in talking with the leadership I'm going to take this time just as a like trying to I guess stay refreshed and get fully refreshed so that I'm set to go for the next however many years many years to go in in ministry so that'll be uh, all of June and, and the first week of July as well. It's about it's five, five Sundays. So uh, we are currently in a series on the life of David. And um, before I read the Bible passage for you tonight, I'm going to give you a little bit of context on two things. Firstly, as we start out this passage, you're going to discover that David is the king of Israel. And last week... Um, in Nick's sermon, uh, Saul, I believe, was still the king of Israel. Is that correct? So there's a fair bit that's happened in the meantime. So let me fill you in. Um, David had been uh, anointed uh, that he's going to be the next king, but Saul was still king. And in um, 1 Samuel chapter 31, Saul was at war with the Philistines, uh, who you know keep being this ongoing battle between the Israelites and the Philistines. Saul was about to be captured. Um, tortured and killed and to avoid that torture he fell on his sword took his own life and then they uh, chopped his head off and they strung his body up to the city walls of the Philistine city and that was the end of Saul 
Um, so um, following that, there's this kind of these chapters where there's all sorts of conflict. The Israelites are at war with their neighbors, and then the Israelites are actually at war with within their own country, the northern part of Israel, known as Judah, with the no, the northern part, the southern part Judah with the northern part Israel, have a bit of a civil war for a little while. Uh, and then David comes in as king and he actually unites Israel, unites the two kingdoms uh, as one nation and leads them as one people uh, united through his whole reign. Uh, if you know the story, two generations later after David's son Solomon reigns over the united Israel, uh, the, the nation divides into two, uh, north and south, Israel and J Judah, and then they are at war and often with each other and divided for many generations to follow. So that fills in the gap there. The first thing that David does as king is he captures the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusite people and he makes it the, the, you know, the home of uh, the Israelites. It makes it their base, their, their centre, their capital, essentially. And so that that's kind of tracks us to where uh, today's story uh, takes us. So today's story is all about the movement of an ark, and I thought I'd better explain this before um, I start preaching it because you're going to be going like, isn't the ark the thing that um, Noah floated around in for 40 days and here they're moving the ark? That must have been hard because it must be really big to move a giant ark. Um, different ark. Uh, an ark is essentially, in the Bible, uh, a vessel that contains something precious. Okay, so Noah's ark was a, was a vessel, a, a structure that contained uh, humanity and all living creatures and this ark contains uh is, is a box it's a wooden box the size of a small wardrobe that god commissioned in exodus 25 for his people to make now this this is going to sound kind of um obscure but in, this is the context for the sermon god instructed his people to make this wooden box to cover it with gold if we can bring up a picture of that that'd be great and then to uh, put two statues of cherubim, which are like angels, over the top of it to put rings on the side and to have wooden poles so that it could be carried. And the whole thing was that as the Israelites were moving through um, the wilderness in Exodus, uh, they would carry the ark before them. And the, the ark would be like their protection because God was kind of enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. The ark was like where the symbol and the actuality of God's presence with God's people. And then uh, God instructed them to build um, a thing called the tabernacle, which was kind of like, like that, a tent structure that was basically the model for when the temple was built. The temple was essentially the same kind of structure, an outer courtyard. And then go, the priest could enter into the tent part and right at the back of the tent was the most sacred, holy part where God's presence would dwell. And that is where the ark would be placed. God's presence would dwell there. And that would be placed in the middle of the camp whenever they set up camp. God's presence would be in the middle of his people, right at the center. And what's actually happened in the 20 years preceding uh, this during Saul's reign is that the ark was lost and was taken to, into the Philistines' um, captivity. And so there's the context for uh, the story that you're about to hear, okay? Now, you probably all knew that because either you've studied the Bible and know about the Ark of the Covenant or because you've watched Indiana Jones and the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, both of which are, you know, 
great theological sources. So, if you've got a Bible, you can open up to um, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I'm going to read to you the whole chapter of what is, I think, a very, very interesting story. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. That's, that's a big number, 30,000. And he and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up the, from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark. That's what I was talking about. They set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. I don't even know what half those instruments are, but basically, you've got 30,000 people in this parade bringing this ark toward Jerusalem and they're throwing this massive celebration, music. It's amazing. Can you picture that? And, um, but then something happened. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. So, there's nothing quite stops a parade like God striking someone down in the midst of that parade. <laughs> uh, but that's what happens here. Then David was angry because of the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And he said, hey, can you look after this box for me? Uh, just put it in your storage shed and don't touch it. Um, <clears throat> the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. He goes to finish the task that he set out to do, then stopped doing, and now he's going to finish that task. He's going to bring the ark into Jerusalem. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They bought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. 
After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the crowd of Israelites. It sounds a little bit weird, but apparently like raisins were like, that was like really, if it was a really big celebration, like, you know, bringing out the raisins, like that's party time, okay? And um, a, bit, a little bit like, uh, in my house when I was growing up, it was the, it was the um, uh, after dinner mints, okay, that was the thing, all right, old people would know about that, in a little foil pack, wow. Anyway, um, and all the people of Israel went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, uh, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. All right. So I want to talk about three things from this passage. I want to talk about moving the ark. I want to talk about touching the ark. And I want to talk about dancing before the ark. Because each of those three things have something powerful to tell us. Moving the ark is about putting God at the center. Touching the ark is about understanding the holiness of God and dancing before the ark is about living for an audience of one and that's a sermon title for tonight, living for an audience of one. Well, let's start with moving the ark. Uh, as I said, for about 20 years the ark had been pushed to the fringe, fringes and this had coincided with Saul's reign. It was actually very significant and a reflection of the difference between Saul's uh, leadership and David's leadership that when Saul was in leadership the ark was in the uh, in the um, occupancy of the Philistines and when David steps into leadership the ark comes back into um, the ownership of the Israelites and is brought into Jerusalem in fact in 1 Chronicles 13 3 it, David says this let us bring the ark of God back to us for we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul so not only was it missing, but they did not even inquire of it. This is the presence of God amongst his people. And for 20 years, it wasn't in their presence. And they didn't even seem to be worried about it. So he said this, and the whole assembly agreed to do this because it seemed right to all the people. And I kind of felt like, um, you know, this would be like saying that, that if I finished my ministry after 20 years in this church, and the next minister came in and said, um, I think we should inquire of the Lord and we should seek to have his presence as, as a central part of our church. And we should sort of invite God's presence back into our church because it hasn't been there for the last 20 years. What an indictment that would be on my ministry if that was the case. If it was like, hey, for 20 years, we didn't even really worry about the presence of God. Now we're saying, let's bring it back into our worship, into our church, make it the center of our community what an indictment that was so it's actually a spiritual statement about the importance of where God dwelt in David's reign in Saul's reign versus where it's going to dwell in David's reign and I guess there's a really uh, big application here none of us are kings making decisions over nations 
But all of us in our lives has, have a level of power and authority and autonomy over the decisions that we make and the priorities and importance and where we place the presence of God and God himself in our lives. So we've got to ask ourselves, does God's place in your life look more like the reign of Saul or the reign of David? Is God in the center or is God somewhere at the fringe? You know, it's an interesting thing as a follower of Jesus because there can be seasons in our life where God is brought right at the center and the presence of God is the thing that we, we just place in that central place, in its rightful place. But it actually can be easy for it to actually move out and even for someone to, to, to allow it to take it out and something else to replace it. And we forget to even inquire about God and His presence in our lives. It's interesting in Australian society, we see Christianity... We see the place of God moving uh, from the center to the margins. So how do we deal with that? And I think that for me, the answer is probably perhaps the starting point is that actually if all Christians place God at the center of their own lives, then there's going to be a shift. I love uh, a poem, a a saying that was um, from a thing called St. Patrick's Breastplate. It was kind of St. Patrick's Statement. Um, that, that, was, that, that he put at the basis of his ministry. This is St. Patrick of Ireland, the great evangelist to Ireland. He said this, Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts, of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. It's like, I want Jesus to be at the center of everything. And so one of the things that sometimes we say is we say, well, uh, if Christianity is about making God number one, make him number one. And then so, you know, something else, you know, maybe for me, like I could say, well, my, ministry, my marriage is number two, my ministry is number three, and family is number four. I don't know what order I put them in. I'm just, but, but that's not maybe the best way of... Of looking at it, maybe the best way to say Jesus at the center, because when Jesus at the, is at the center, then Jesus is not just at the center, and I kind of detach myself and I go have Jesus time. But actually, in my family, Jesus becomes at the center of my family. In my marriage, Jesus becomes at the center of my marriage. In my in my relationship with my wife, Jesus becomes the center of that as well. Jesus at the center. I just want to challenge you and encourage you not to put Jesus at the center. So moving the ark towards Jerusalem. There's a big parade. Uh, I love a good parade. Actually, I don't really love a good parade. I don't know why I said that. But I like... I, uh, <laughs> South Australians love a good parade. We love the Christmas pageant. Who's a fan of the Christmas pageant? You can be honest. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, last parade I went to was the 2017 AFL Grand Final Parade. The AFL... Day before the AFL Grand Final, Crows versus... Richmond, and um, we were there watching the, watching the players go past, and everyone's cheering for their players, but at the very end of that parade was the cup, and everyone's like wanting to bring the cup back to their city, you know, wanting for that cup to come back, and this is kind of, <laughs> maybe magnified a hundred times, kind of how it is, everyone's gathered, and it looks amazing, 30,000 soldiers bringing this ark in, crowds gathered, musicians playing, and it looks great, doesn't it? It looks like it would be amazing, but you know what? David's doing it all wrong. He's doing it all wrong. Because in the Word of God, it said when you move the ark, the ark is to be carried, 
and rings were designed to be placed on the ark at God's instruction and certain poles were designed to be made at a certain length of a certain wood and a certain tribe of the Levites who are a certain family group were designated to carry that ark. When it was, whenever it was moved, a family from within the Levite tribe were, were assigned the specific role of moving the ark. But David's not doing that. He's assigned his soldiers and he's put it on a cart. Now, the question is, where did he get the idea to put it on a cart? It's actually not just a choice he's made. He's actually following the way the Philistines moved the ark. They put it on a cart and moved it around that way. So David, instead of following the scriptures and searching the scriptures, is actually imitating someone else. And it's an interesting thing because sometimes we think, hey, I want to do something for God, but we don't want to do it God's way. And we, we think, well, I'll just cut a few corners. You know, I'll be sort of generally obedient to God, but maybe not obedient to God in the little details. And we think it probably won't make any difference. But actually what's going to happen as a consequence of these specific choices is that a guy called Uzzah is going to die. Really interesting. And I don't know how often we do this sometimes in churches where our service and our style and our approach is more about imitation than based on searching the scriptures. And sometimes we do that with our own Christian lives. We, we, we model our Christian lives by kind of imitating others rather than searching the scriptures and obeying, being obedient to God and his word. And God wants to draw us back into the scriptures again and again and say, just come back to the word of God and just search the scriptures to find out. You've got a problem, you've got a trial, you've got a challenge, you're not sure where to go. Search the scriptures as the starting point, not the last thing you think of doing. So that leads us to the next point, which is touching the ark. Touching the ark. This is, this is a difficult passage, let's be honest. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. Then the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Well, you can see what's happened here. Carts coming along, oxen pulling it, oxen stumble. Uzzah thinks this uh, precious ark is going to hit the deck. So he reaches out his hand to stop it. God strikes him down and kills him. Does that seem a little bit harsh to you? A little bit unfair? It's interesting. Uh, I was listening to someone who preached on this uh, this week and he was saying that he uh, likes to go onto atheist forums and read what atheists are saying on atheist forums. Um, Obviously, he hasn't discovered golf like I have, because um, <laughs> I find better things to do with my time. But, uh, you know, I, no, it's just being silly. But, it's a, um, you know, he goes on there and just likes to hear. And, and he said that uh, as he read why people had turned away from faith, people who'd perhaps grown up in the church, time and again, this was one of the scriptures that was quoted as a reason people turned away from God. That God seemed to be capricious, which is to say prone to moody and, uh, and kind of unjustified, unaccountable changes of mood and behavior. Unfair, unjust, and God wasn't being God, uh, kind of the fair, loving, gracious God that people wanted to, to, to know about. So how do we make sense of this? So it's, a, it's an important question. 
Well, I think the, the, the absolute starting point is that we need to, to reckon with, that is we need to think deeply about and wrestle with and understand the holiness of God. Because there's something that's happened in our society and within our churches is that our view of God has been significantly distorted from the right picture of God. And it's kind of happened this way. If you were to go back a few hundred years, uh, people's understanding of God was a God who was awesome. In fact, they used to use the word awful, full of awe, that, that, that they would be in reverent fear of God. In fact, sometimes they would simply be in abject fear of God. Not even a holy fear, just a an out-and-out fear of God. There's many accounts of people just being in fear of God. They'd be in a lightning storm and they think God's going to strike them down. That was their understanding of God. And there was something very unhealthy about that. But there was actually also something correct in that. And, and, and in the great cathedrals of the Middle Ages, there'd be this uh, murals and paintings of the final judgment and people would come into church almost trembling in reverent silence and and holy fear. And then people more recently rediscovered what's right there in Scripture, that God is a loving and gracious God, a God of intimacy who invites us into relationship with Him. And God became this very accessible God. And He became a very, very nice God, and he, and, but He also became a very safe God. And He became a very tame God. But God's not tame. He can't be tamed and he can't be put, uh, he can't be, he won't conform to the way we want him to be all the time. God is still an awesome and mighty and powerful God. A God who, uh, you know, the beginning of wisdom is, fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. And we largely have lost that reverence in, and so we haven't sort of added to this understanding of God as awesome and mighty and powerful and added to it this incredible reality that God is also relationally intimate, we've instead traded one for the other. And we've lost the fullness of who God is. God has become little more for many people than a cosmic Father Christmas, who we go to when we want things. And largely when we don't want things, we can leave alone. Rather than bowing down before Him in reverent awe and true worship, and then when God doesn't give us what we want, because that's what God's there for, He's there to give us what we want when we want it. So when God doesn't give us what we want, people become very angry very quickly with God. God has not done what I wanted. He's there to serve me. Actually, the opposite is true. We flip the script. We, God is not there to serve us. We are there to serve God. And while we kind of get that all mixed up and around the wrong way, our view of God is terribly distorted. God is a holy God. And saying God is a holy God, uh, when we talk about holiness and we sing God is a holy God, it kind of sounds to us like just some religious term. And I can't really even describe to you the holiness of God. It's like for me, that perhaps the best illustration is to talk about the sun and to say the sun is really, really hot. And God's holiness is His perfection and His power. And God is really, really holy. But saying that the sun is really, really hot doesn't quite describe how hot the sun is, does it? Because do you know how hot the sun is? It's really, really, really hot. <laughs> and our God is a really, really, 
really holy God. He is a God so holy that when the Ark of the Covenant is made and His presence is going to dwell there, He specifically instructs His people, do not touch this box or you will die. And when Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, everyone else is told, do not touch this mountain or you will die. Because when sinful people come into the presence of a holy God, it is, it is overwhelming and God's wrath will be poured out because of sin. And so the other part of this story is the holiness of God. And it's also wrestling with and reckoning with the magnitude of sin. How much in our generation has sin been minimized or removed from that lexicon? We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. In fact, we want to justify it and deny it. This is my personal choice. This is me living my life. God loves me no matter what. Therefore, no matter what, I just do whatever I want. God's role is to love me. He's got to, he better accept me. If he doesn't, I'll have nothing to do with him. That's the mindset of today's Christians, often. We're so far out of whack. R.C. Sproul, a theologian, said, The failure of modern evangelicalism is the failure to understand the holiness of God. Someone else uh, once said, <coughs> he said, The loss of the sense of God's holiness always produces the loss of of the sense of sin sinfulness. I'll say that again. The loss of the sense of God's holiness always produces the loss of the sense of sin's sinfulness. But it's in light of God's holiness and, and the magnitude of sin that the beauty of grace is discovered. Because grace isn't that beautiful if sin isn't great and if God isn't holy. But when we understand God's holiness, and we understand the magnitude of sin, then the fact that we are forgiven through the blood of Jesus and we are invited into this intimate relationship with a God who completely forgives us and wipes all our sin away from the past and the present and the future. And God looks at us and says, you are holy and you are blameless in my sight. Do you get how big that is? You are holy. You are holy. God looks at me and, and says, I am holy. That is ridiculous. And he looks at you and you can think about Whatever sin it is that you are perhaps most ashamed of, and God looks at you and he says, I don't even see that. I see you as perfect, as pure, as completely forgiven. I don't even see it. I just see you as holy and blameless. Wow. It gives me grounds to worship God. In the book Blue Like Jazz, I don't know if anyone's read Blue Like Jazz. I, I love that book. You've probably never heard of it. Um, it's a story about a guy wrestling with faith, and, uh, and he's, he's about to go out to a protest, and all his friends are protesting about the government, and they're protesting about corporations, and they're protesting about capitalism, and they're thinking what they're going to write on their, their sign that they're going to hold up, and he's wrestling with it, and he gets the realisation that it's not... It's not the government that's the problem, and it's not corporations that are really the ultimate problem, and it's not capitalism that's the problem. So he writes on his banner the reality that's come to him. I am the problem. And I think that's a very powerful realization. But by the grace of God, we are forgiven. Let's go back to the story. David has a huge problem. He gives up. He's got his 30,000 people there. Uzzah's been killed. They're like, okay, uh, let's just hand this off to this guy, Obed-Edom. But Obed-Edom gets blessed. Isn't it true? So often I see that with the presence of God and when we bring the presence of God into our lives, there is blessing. David uh, hears this story and says, right, let's 
do this correctly. And David has been searching the Scriptures because 1 Chronicles also tells this story and it says in the story that the second time round, he grabs the Levites and he grabs the right people and they actually, they don't just bring it in on a cart this time, they carry it into Jerusalem. And David's showing incredible reverence for God and realising the holiness of God. Every time they take six steps, he sacrifices an animal every six steps. It was seen that this doesn't just happen after the first six steps, but I think what they're saying is that every six steps they make a sacrifice because they recognize the holiness of God. And in that moment with the music playing, David, point three, begins to dance before the ark. And this is what I want to talk about, living for an audience of one. He starts dancing. He's got his linen ephod on. We're not quite sure whether that's all he's got on because that's kind of like his uh, a priest's underwear, essentially. And... Um, says in Chronicles he's also wearing a robe. Uh, I watched a YouTube where he was dancing in his under, underwear very bizarrely. Don't look it up. It's just disturbing. And you're all going to get home and search that now. It's probably worth watching. It's really, really wacky dancing. Um, but anyway, he starts dancing. He just gets carried away. He is... I don't know what he's doing. The moonwalk, I don't know. Um, he's going off and he walks past the window of his wife, Mikael, who's also Saul's daughter, long story there, which I won't go into, and she looks out and she goes, she just despises him. He's just disgracing himself. And what, what I think is best to understand from this is that Mikael is realising that this is David's moment. He's the newly crowned king marching with the Ark of the Covenant into the newly made capital and the crowds have gathered and he has got this moment to like put his shoulders back and march in like a king would and have everyone look at him and say, bravo, what a respectable, honourable, great king. He's done this wonderful thing. What an achievement. What a guy. And instead of marching in in a respectable way, he's just got completely overwhelmed and he's dancing before the Lord in worship. She says this is a disgrace. But... David is dancing not for Michal and not for the people of Israel. He is dancing for an audience of one. And I want to challenge us tonight that we need to live our lives for an audience of one. Because I'm telling you, there is so much pressure on everyone to live for all sorts of people and to spend our lives in insecurity and fear, and worry, and anxiety, and, and making our decisions based on what this person thinks, or what that group thinks, or what this person says, or how many likes we get on Facebook, or whether we think maybe it was a good enough filter that, that on, on Instagram that kind of worked, or whatever it is. And you know, there's this kind of whole, you know, I've got teenage kids now, so there's peer group pressure that they're wrestling with, but even in adult life, there's this constant pressure. As a preacher of the word... I know that after every sermon, everyone goes home and they can have like roast preacher for lunch or dinner. You know, you can have pasta for tea and you kind of uh, make the assessment. Was it a good one or a bad one? Or you make leadership decisions. You know, everyone in the church is, is, is watching and assessing. But here's the thing. If I preach for you guys based on the feedback I get from you and my goal is to please you, I've got it all wrong. I need to preach for an audience of one. I need to lead for an audience of one. 
and you need to live and I need to live for an audience of one. Not to please people, not to try to impress people, not out of insecurity, not out of fear, but to say, I'm going to live my life for God because he is worth it. And I'm going to worry about what he thinks. True worship True worship, I, I, kinda, I started this week thinking that, that true worship was, was all about David's intimacy with God. You know, what we see in the Psalms of this intimate relationship David has with God, and, and that's true. But it's more than that. It's about, it's about true worship is about intimacy and awe. It's about fear and trembling together with peace and security. It's about, it's about knowing God is all-powerful, but also knowing that he's gracious, knowing that he's holy other and yet also knowing that he's intimate and close knowing that there's no way we should be able to talk to him and yet he instructs us through Jesus to ask seek and knock knowing that there's no way we should be asked to come into able to come into his presence but knowing through Hebrew Hebrews we are invited into um, the, the holiest of places by the grace of God and so we need to live for an audience of one I'm going to ask the band to come up and um, lead us now um, into whatever's happening next in the service, a song, and then communion. And I want to encourage you to think about which part of this message God has stirred with you. Is it about the place of God and his presence in your life, whether God is actually at the centre or on the margins? Is it that you need to reckon with the holiness of God and your view of God and with the magnitude of sin? And is it that you need to think about what it means for you to live for an audience of one? And I want to pray for you out of this uh, before we go into the song let's bow our heads and pray in fact do you want to stand up do you want to stand up and then let's pray together to our great god because i think this message should lead to repentance and renewal so let me pray heavenly father i am sorry and we are sorry for the times when we have reduced you from something other than the fullness of who you are when we, have, when we have imagined you as a tame God or a weak God, when we have kind of tried to, to shape you and control you and we have limited our understanding of the magnitude of your power and greatness and perfection, we are sorry for that. We are sorry for our sin because we know we are a sinful people and we know that we fall so short of your glory and that there is nothing about our lives and how we live it that's ever going to earn our way into heaven into your presence into the right to enter into your presence and yet Lord we say thank you Jesus because you Jesus a once and for all perfect sacrifice have covered our sin with your blood and we have been washed clean thank you that God the, God, the almighty God that you are, you look at us through Jesus. You see us as holy, us as holy and blameless in your sight. 
And so, Lord, I'm going to say, I want to live for you and for you alone. And if you want to live for, for Jesus alone this, right now, I just want you to just, just, you don't have to say this out loud, but just in your own heart, you just, I just want you to say that right now between you and God. I'm going to give you 20 seconds to pray whatever you want to pray to Jesus right now. Thank you, God, that, you know, the Israelites lost the ark and they misplaced the ark and all this kind of stuff and then they carried it the wrong way. But you were good enough to allow your presence to return and be established in the middle of your people. And Lord, thank you that you come and live and dwell in the center of our lives. I feel like tonight for some people is actually about something pretty significant. It's about a rededication of your faith where God has not been in the place in your life where he should be. And if that's you tonight, I just want you in worship just to keep praying to God and keep dwelling on this and then to worship God in spirit and truth as you sing out whatever our next song is. Thank you, God, for your grace in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.